thanking the Metzger family for once again sponsoring the learning this afternoon, the Eloy Nishmas, their mother, Pearl Brown, on the commemoration of her fourth yard site, Harold Bas Yosef, and we hope that the schus of our Divrei Torah will be an Eloy Hanashama for her and a schus for your entire family. The Medrash has a story which made me cry not from sadness, but because I felt it was so powerful and so meaningful. The Medrash writes about a couple who was married for 10 years, and unfortunately they didn't have the gift of children. Now it's not like today where we have so many opportunities to go for all kinds of fertility treatments and to try to figure out how to help a couple that's dealing with such a difficult situation. Back then, there was not much to do. They couldn't figure out whether it was male infertility, female infertility, how are we going to begin to treat this couple, how are we going to help them? And that's why the Gemara says that if you have a couple that is married for 10 years and they're not blessed with children, the advice the Gemara gives is they should get divorced and they should each go on their own way They should each try to marry somebody else. And they should each try to fulfill their dream of bringing children into the world. Writes the Gemara, writes the Medrash. This couple was in love with each other. But they couldn't have children. And it comes 10 years and they still don't have children. And they have a very difficult conversation with each other. And they finally come to the conclusion, look, we both want to be able to have children. We're going to have to divorce. What else can we do? And they go to Reb Shimon ben Yochai to discuss the issue. They come to the home of Reb Shimon ben Yochai and they say, we want to get divorced, not because we hate each other, but because unfortunately we're not blessed with children. And Rabbi Shimon Yochai says, I understand, and I agree with your sentiment. It's probably the right decision. However, he says, we have to do something to highlight the fact that this divorce is very different than any other. You see, usually when a couple gets divorced, there's a lot of bitter fighting, and they hate each other, and there's a reason for the divorce. But here, you're getting divorced because you love each other. You're getting divorced because you want the best for one another. And you're both agreeing to this because you really care about each other. So Rabbi Shimon Yochai said, we have to do something to show that this divorce is going to be different than every other. How are we going to do that? Here's what you do. See, when you got married, said Rabbi Shimon Yochai, you had Michael Umishta, you had a big celebration, you had a lot of food, your friends came together, you had a big party. By this divorce, as strange as it sounds, we're going to do the same. Because this is doing what's best for each other. Just like when you got married, you did what was best for both of you. Now when you're getting divorced, you're doing what is best for both of you. And that should be done by Michael of Amishta. So they invite all the guests and they put together a beautiful party. And everyone comes not knowing what they're celebrating. 
And they get up in front of the crowd and they tell them why it is that they're separating, why it is that they're getting divorced, and everyone begins to cry. And this husband starts to drink. And he becomes so inebriated, he doesn't really have his full senses. And he turns to all the guests who are assembled and he says, I want you all to know, I love this woman so much. She has a right to take whatever she wants from the house before she leaves. We're not separating because we hate each other. We're separating because of our love. I want her to take anything in the house. No negotiation, no asking questions. Let her take whatever she feels is appropriate. As the evening goes on and he gets more and more inebriated, he falls asleep on a bed. And she turns to some of the guests and she says, take this bed by the four legs of the bed. I want you to carry the bed with my husband in it to my parents' home. Why would we carry your husband to your parents' home? She says, didn't you hear my husband say, I have a right to take anything from the house that I want. There's nothing I want from the house other than him. Nothing else matters to me. A couple of hours later, he wakes up and he's completely disoriented and he finds himself in a place that he doesn't recognize. And he turns to his wife who's sitting there at the edge of the bed and he says, where am I? Where are we? And she says, we're in my parents' home. What are we doing in your parents' home? She says, do you remember that earlier on today you said, I have a right to take anything from our home that matters to me? I want you to know, there's nothing in the world that matters to me from that house. I don't want the paintings. I don't want anything that we had. I don't want any of the money. I don't care about our bank accounts. The only thing I want from that house is you. And together they both went back to Reb Shimon Yochai and they told him what happened. Reb Shimon Yochai gathers them into a little huddle and the three of them begin to cry and they all begin to daven together and they ended up remaining married to one another and they had a child. And Reb Shimon Yochai said, Lila Medcha, what do we learn from the story? If a human being is willing to say to another person, If I'm willing to stand up and say, there's nothing in the world that matters more to me than you, you're willing to change your mind, you're willing to do anything, we'll come back together because you care about nothing else other than me. Then certainly said of Shimon Yochai, if we would stand up, if those who are waiting for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's return into our lives, like Michal just said so beautifully, if you really want that, then says the Medrash, then you're willing to say, there's nothing in the world I want other than you HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Do you think the Rebona Shalom is going to ignore you? Do you think the Rebona Shalom won't respond? Who wants to get divorced when their spouse is begging and crying 
there's nothing in the world that I want other than you. Nothing matters to me. There's no meaning to my life without you. I can't go one day forward without you being a part of my life experience. Anyone who is here today, who continues to be here today, is saying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's nothing in the world that I want other than you. There's nothing else in the world that matters other than being together with you. And having the opportunity to spend our day together with the Ribbon Shalolam. What a privilege it is. What a gift. What a blessing. And what an opportunity to take these moments and say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I want you to know that throughout the year and throughout my experience and my journey of life, there are many things that take my attention. There are many things that I'm busy with. But I want you to know at a moment of clarity when there's nothing else happening, there's nothing else in the world that I want other than you. Is it possible that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wouldn't want to be involved in a relationship like that? You know, Tisha B'Av means different things to different people. Some families use Tisha B'Av, this national day of mourning, to try to reflect on their personal life experiences, on the challenges, the obstacles, the difficulties, the nisyonos that they may have gone through on their own, that they may have lived through as individuals or as a family, Others use this day to focus on our complicated history, all the national tragedies, because they're blessed not to have their own nisyonos in their own life. However you may have chosen to spend the last 17 hours, it is now Tisha B'Av afternoon. At some point over the course of the day of Tisha B'Av, I feel it's important that we give focus not only to the stories of our past, not only to talk about the communities that were destroyed and the glory of the Jewish people and the Beis Migdash and all of that, which is so important, and of course we need to focus and think about it. But at some point we also need to think about our ambitions for the future. We're here. We are here, we have survived. Why we survived, we don't know. Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu decide to destroy so many over the course of Jewish history and yet we are here? It's a good question, but we're here. Which means the Rebona Shalalam has every intention of making sure that we are the ones who will ensure the continuity of the Jewish people. And it means that at some point we need to think about not only our past, which is always important to reflect on, but also to make time to think about our ambitions for our future, to think about our national aspiration, to think about where we are and where we're headed. Maybe I'm a little crazy for choosing to speak about a sensitive topic, but I thought maybe on Tisha B'Av afternoon, maybe we can have a little bit more of an honest and open conversation about something that I think about a lot internally, but never have the guts to talk about in a public setting. If anyone's minds are racing, it's not, it's not anything <laughs> too wild. But the question I want to think about today is, 
How healthy is our relationship with materialism? Let's put it on the table. We are an extremely materialistic society and an extremely materialistic community. How healthy is our relationship with our materialism? How much has our materialism become an excessive and over-exaggerated focus in our lives? How much do we allow materialism to be the driving force behind the decisions that we make for ourselves and for our families? We just read this morning in the Haftorah. And let's just think on a communal level. How much does materialism play a role in how we view other people? What does the Nabi tell us this morning, the Nabi Yirmiyah? Why do I care that you have money? Why should anyone care that you have money? Ask the Nabi. You're respecting people because they're rich? You're giving them kavod because they're more successful in business than others? How does that even make any sense? Take a step back and ask yourself, does that make sense? There's a reason why we read it on Tisha B'av in the morning. Not only because the beginning of that nevuah is one which is all about destruction and churban, but it's also because what the Navi wants to remind us is that this is not where the priorities lie. Anyone who's a thinking person will understand that. What you think your success is because you're so smart? We've seen very stupid people who are very successful. We've seen very smart people who are not successful. You understand the formula? You think you're so smart? And that's why you are where you are? Says the Navi, why should a person take pride in their life? For what accomplishment? Do you spend time in your life trying to figure out how to have a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu? We all said the words this morning. Do we try to make time and space to figure out how to gain a greater understanding of the Rebona Shalom? Materialism is not the way to get there. It stands in our way. So what exactly is our relationship with our materialism? We've spent a day today divorced from materialism. We don't eat. We don't drink. We don't engage in all the pleasures that a normal day would allow us to do. And the point of all of that is not only to feel churban, but also to remind us of what the Nabi's words are. That the focus of life should not be materialism. The focus of life should not be ashir ba'ashro, chacham b'chachmaso, gibar b'gvuraso, but rather ki imbezos yishalal hamishalal. Haskel v'yodea osi. The focus of life needs to be to say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ein li chefetz tov ba'olam elabach, you are the only thing that matters to me. If I could take anything from the world with me, if I was going on a trip, I recently got an email from somebody who runs a podcast. I did not agree to speak on it because it didn't interest me at all. 
the questions that they sent me were so ridiculous. But one of them was, if you were on a desert island, which book would you take with you? Why is that relevant to anybody else? What would be interesting to me doesn't have to be interesting to you. And even if it's a book in the realm of Torah, just because I would bring a Gemara or I would bring a Mishnayis or I would bring a Tehillim or a Siddur or a Chumash, why does that reflect on anybody else? I thought the questions were so silly. But the question that we should ask ourselves internally, not on a podcast, is, yes, if you were to go on a desert island with nobody else there, what would you take with you? What is most valuable to you in your life? Would you take the Ribbon Shalom? Would you make sure that he's a part of your experience? Or is that just an afterthought? I read an article about a year ago when they were having those horrific forest fires in Yerushalayim. Uncontrollable fires. And it reached Yishuv Beit Meir, which is a regular Yishuv right outside of Yerushalayim. And there was a family that wrote that they had just moved into Beit Meir. And suddenly they had an emergency call where they were told, you have a couple of minutes to get everything out because the fires are raging, you have to leave. And they couldn't even think. And they quickly took whatever they could, jumped into the car and they ran out of the town, of the community, and got themselves to safety. Much to their surprise, later on when things settled down, they finally opened the back of their trunk and they wanted to see, what did we take? They weren't paying attention earlier. They couldn't think. They ran as fast as they could. And they said they were so moved to see that the only things they had in their trunk were a guitar, a sitter, a chumash, and a tehillah. There's nothing else in their house that they took with them. At a moment when a person is not thinking, what does my instinct tell me to do? What does my instinct tell me is the most important item in my life? The guitar, they said, brought out Shire Neshama, brought out their soul. How can I go anywhere without a chumash, a sitter, and a tehillah? I didn't calculate. I probably had a lot more expensive items, and I can always buy a sitter later. But what's most valuable to me, when all else is stripped away, is... The Psukim in Parshas Truma, Tetzave, Vayakel, Pekude, describe the construction, the building of the Mishkan in great detail, and were given very specific instructions of exactly how everything needed to be done, and the engineering that was required for this project, and the design and the creativity that was necessary to put all of it together, all the Chacham Leiv Bachem, they all came together. And there's a listing of exactly every material that was needed, all the supplies and the items necessary to finish this divine project. It spans four entire parshios and sefer shmos. In fact, the description of the building of the Mishkan spans 400 psukim, which is over 10 times the amount of psukim that are given to detail the entire creation of the world. So the Mishkan was very important. Beis Amigdash is very important. At the completion of this very lengthy process, finally we're told, Vayakem Moshe Asamishkan. Moshe Rabbeinu finally 
constructed the Mishkan and we're ready to go. And what happens then? Medrash says at this celebratory moment, there's an appalling conversation that takes place between Moshe Rabbeinu and the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu was a very meticulous person. Rav Salavechik writes in a number of places how Jews need to be meticulous. How many times have someone asked the question, does God really care if I daven mincha at 6.15 or at 6.19, a minute before the Shkia, a minute after the Shkia, does he care? When Tisha B'Av begins, the start of the fast was 8.16, does he really care if I eat at 8.19? Does it really matter? Salavechik writes about how HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to be disciplined. And part of that is understanding and prioritizing our zman, looking carefully at, yes, what time is it? Am I supposed to be eating? Am I not? Am I supposed to be fasting? Am I supposed to be doing something else? Yes, we have a very meticulous expectation of the way Jews need to live their lives. So Moshe Rabbeinu did the same. And says the Medrash, Mishanigra Melechas HaMishkan, once they were finished, we're told, Vayakim Moshe HaMishkan, here we are, He's standing there presenting this beautiful building, the Mishkan. Come, everybody, and enjoy. See what it is. After all the work that you've invested, after all the money you've given. Moshe Rabbeinu says, oh, one second. One second, everyone. Before we open the gates, let me just tell you how I spent every penny that you gave. Which is interesting. It's interesting. This is not like a shul membership meeting where people are going to stand up and start yelling about the fiduciary responsibilities of a board and did they do everything responsibly or not, it's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was Adon HaNavim. Moshe Rabbeinu, who everybody knew, was with HaKadosh Baruch Hu on Harsinai Arbaim Yom Arbaim Laila. Do you think there was one member of the Jewish people who actually wasn't sure... What did Moshe Rabbeinu do with my contribution? It's not as if Moshe Rabbeinu was living a fancy lifestyle. Moshe Rabbeinu was living in the same tent as everybody else. In fact, Moshe Rabbeinu was living outside of the Machana. He had less than everybody else. So what do you think he did with it? Why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to do this? But nevertheless, says the Medrash, Bo v'ani Moshe Rabbeinu says, one second, I'm going to give you an exact breakdown an accounting of every penny that was given, I'm going to tell you where it is. Okay. Moshe Rabbeinu starts going through, and that's what the Torah means when it says, Ele Pekude HaMishkan. Pekude HaMishkan means, he went through an accounting of every single contribution that was given, and he explained where it went. Says the Medrash, Moshe Rabbeinu is doing fine, he's explaining everything, showing everybody where the plaques are going to go, and who dedicated this, and who donated that, it sounds great. And then he realizes... In higher mathematics, that's 1,775 shkalim were not accounted for. Okay. Let's, let's take a step back. How many Jewish people were there at the time? At least 600,000. There were more than that. Much more than that. But yet, each person only gave a matzah sashekel. Even with each person giving a matzah sashekel, you have a whole lot of money. So if Moshe Rabbeinu was going to steal money, I would have suggested that he takes a lump sum and do something good with it. So how much is missing? 
1,775 shkalim. And Moshe Rabbeinu gets into a panic. What am I going to do? I can't figure it out. I've pointed out where every other penny went. And here, the people are now going to suggest that I stole the last 1,775 shkalim. And Moshe Rabbeinu is looking around ferociously to figure out where did the money go? I can't figure it out. And he goes into every room of the Mishkan and he tries to see, is it here, is it there? Finally, it dawns on him, oh, I made a little screw on the bottom of the Krushim. There was a little Vaveh Ha'amudim, a little nail over there. When I put all those nails together, it cost me 1,775 shkalim. Oh, now I feel comfortable. And he finally clears himself of all of those who are standing and waiting to go into the Mishkan. So Rabbi Meir Shapiro points out, this is shocking. This is shocking. It's shocking not only because they didn't trust Moshe Rabbeinu and he felt he had to give an accounting for those last thousand shekel, what's going to happen? But aside from that, think about what happened to the same generation of Jews. Rabbi Meir Shapiro points out, it comes to making an egel. Nobody really knows what this egel is about. Nobody knows if it's going to be successful. Nobody knows what's happening. Everybody knows that this is wrong. We're going to go bow down to an idol. God just took us out of Mitzrayim. Moshe Rabbeinu just went up to get the luchos and give us the Torah. We're going to make an egel masechel. What are we, crazy? And yet, what happens by the egel? They stand up and say, okay, we're making a campaign to make an egel. Who wants to contribute? You know, we have all kinds of campaigns in our community. Some of them go well, some of them don't. Look at the egel campaign. They didn't even wait to go home and talk it over with their family members. What they do, everybody took off their jewelry from their ears, took off all of their bracelets, took off all of their watches, everything they had, and immediately, without asking any questions, throw it in to the pot to be a part of this communal collection that we're going to make for the success of the Ego. Amazing, says our Mayor Shapiro. What an unhealthy relationship with their materialistic parts of themselves. How do you spend your money? Are you a careful spender? Are you someone who's always mindful of how you spend? Or is it only when it comes to spiritual matters that suddenly you get all nervous and you, you know, this is asking too much. This esrog is too expensive. And this sukkah is going to cost me too much. Going on my vacations, I never think twice. Giving to the Egel, not that Egel and vacation is the same. Sorry. But in this context, going to give money to the Yegel by Yisparku Kala'am. Everybody's throwing all the jewelry in without a second thought, without a shred of doubt that everything I'm doing is fine. Did anyone turn around and ask, where did all the contributions to the Yegel go? There's only one cow there. Who took all the money? Nobody asked. Oh, Moshe Rabbeinu, we're short a thousand shkalim. He's going to hear from us. We're careful. What do you think? You're just going to waste money like that? Where to go? Where'd the money go? How healthy is your relationship with your money? The Chafetz Chaim writes, we're all familiar. I've had so many questions that people have asked about staka and how are we supposed to give staka properly? One thing everybody knows is you don't give more than a chomesh away to staka. Everybody knows that. How you allocate the staka that you're giving, who you give it to and where you choose to spend it. All right, that's a different question. But everybody knows that we don't give more than Chomesh. Everybody knows you don't give away all of your money. You give away a certain percentage of your money. Said the Chafetz Chaim, 
Why did Chazal make that institution? The Gemara Ksubas Dafnun writes, this is Be'usha Hiskinu, is a Takanas Chachamim, that nobody should give more than a Chomash Nechas of a weighted staka. Why? Why? Why were Chazal so worried? Because they're concerned, Shema Ye'ani Bi'itzdarach Lebirs. It doesn't make sense. You're going to give away all your money, then how are you going to live? If I'm going to keep giving so generously, it's very nice, but then I'm not going to have for myself, and that doesn't make sense. So Chazal said, everybody has to tone it down. You can only give a Chomash Nechasa. You have to limit yourself when you're giving staka. Says the Chafetz Chaim, we all know that halacha. Everybody knows you don't give more than a chomish. Writes the Chafetz Chaim, Alachas kama v'kama yesh lo la'adam lios zahir shalo lefazer mamono le'inyan reik shal kavad hamadume. If I don't spend more than a chomish nechasav, even on the mitzvah of tzedakah, then how much do I spend on other things in my life? Says the Chafetz Chaim, everybody knows that we don't give more than this amount of tzedakah, but nobody knows that we don't spend more than this amount on our vacation. Nobody talks about that. But said the Chafetz Chaim, Chazal were trying to encourage us to think about how we spend our money. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you the gift of having materialistic wealth, then it means He wants you to spend it properly. It means He wants you, He entrusts you that there are things you're supposed to do with it and there are other things that are inappropriate to do with it. It's not all yours. You think you have money because you're so smart? You think you're so successful because you're so strategic, because you figured out how to rig the system and get yourself to be so wealthy? It's because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave it to you. It's the Rebona Shalom who chose for you to have that. And if He limits you in the amount of tzedakah that you give from that amount, then of course He limits you in the amount that you spend for other areas of life also, from what you have. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, we make very elaborate simchas and very elaborate vacations, but we, we're tremendous balet staka. Tremendous, they're amazing balet staka. Don't talk about the wedding. Why does one balance out the other, may I ask? It's HaKadosh Baruch Hu's money. It's the Ribona Shalom's money. What does it matter how much tzedakah you give that doesn't make up for the fact that you're spending irresponsibly the money that he gave you? People should spend. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to enjoy his world. But says the Chafetz Chaim within measure. If there's a measure to how much we're willing to spend on giving tzedakah, then there has to be a measure to how much we're willing to spend on other things as well. We're familiar with the story of the Ben of Morer. Very tragic story that the Psukim describe in Parshas Kiseitse in the very end of Sefer Dvarim. And there we're told that the parents have to stand up and say, This child is problematic. What has the child already done? He ate a little bit too much. He's drinking a little too much. He's too involved. Stealing money. Okay. Ask the Gemara, so you're going to kill a child because he's eating and drinking a little too much? He's stealing money? You never met a presumptuous young child? You never met a pretentious young man or woman who does things that aren't totally appropriate. Happens every once in a while. You never met a kid who stole something that they weren't supposed to take. Kids do things, immature. Someday they'll grow up. What, are you going to kill this child? Asked the Gemara. Because he ate a little meat, he stole a little money, he drank a little wine. You're going to kill him? What, are you crazy? That's the Gemara's question. It sounds unreasonable. Answers the Gemara, no, 
he's on a trajectory to all bad things. And therefore, we don't allow him to have the experience of life. Ask the Ramban. That's the Gemara's answer, but we're still left with a question. And that is, he's on a bad trajectory to do immature things. Does he deserve to have his life taken away from him? What has this child done wrong? In fact, asked the Ramban, is there any prohibition in the Torah to eat meat and drink wine? What's the problem? The Torah gives us a mitzvah of shechita, which means obviously the Torah assumes that we're going to eat meat. The Torah allows us to drink wine. So a Nazir abstains from drinking wine, but that means everybody else in the community is allowed to. So what's the problem, asked the Ramban? Why does this child have his life taken away? Writes the Ramban, when somebody is inappropriate with materialism, when somebody is too engaged in meat and wine and all of the materialistic parts of this world, says the Ramban, yes, they are doing something wrong. What are they doing wrong? Well, the Torah says, We have an obligation to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to cling to Him. Says the Ramban, Nitztavinu ladas Hashem b'chodorachenu, v'zolel v'sovei lo yodea derech Hashem. Somebody who's so busy, somebody who is so over-obsessed with this, it is impossible for them to know HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Impossible, says the Ramban. That's the problem. The Sefer Achinoch, when he writes about the mitzvah of Avas Hashem, and we say it every day, and we talk about our love for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Says the Sefer Achinoch, what does it mean? It's a mitzvah tmidius, it's a mitzvah that we have at all times to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Very few of the mitzvahs apply all the time. We don't keep Shabbos every day. We don't keep kosher all the time because we're not eating all day long. But the mitzvah of Avas Hashem is a mitzvah that is a mitzvah tmidius. It's constant, it's current, it's all the time. Says the Sefer Achinuch, if a person is going to be so over-obsessed with materialism, then there's no way that they can focus on Abbas Hashem. It's impossible. If I'm so focused on that, I can't be focused on this. So that is what he writes. Why do I mention all of this? Not only because we had in the Haftarah this morning, but this really is just an introduction to an additional point, which I think is extremely powerful. When the Navi Zechariah describes the coming of Mashiach, you know, we have images in our minds of what the coming of Mashiach is going to look like, what's that going to feel like, what's the scene going to be. We talk about it in our tefillah, we hope we're going to be able to see and experience the coming of Mashiach. So what is the image that the Navi gives? What is the description of the coming of Mashiach? It's all but exciting. Says the Navi, This is in the Navi Zechariah. You should be very excited the children of Zion means the Jewish people. Hari bas Yerushalayim, you should shout, you should scream, you should all come together and celebrate. Why? Because Hine Malkei because your king has finally come. Tzadik Venoshahu, this king is righteous. This king is very special. And you know what he's going to look like? Ani Verochev Al Hachamor. He's going to be a simple-looking person who's going to be riding on a donkey. Maybe we could get the Melech HaMashiach a chauffeur. Maybe a Porsche or something. 
He has to ride on a donkey? There are even nicer animals than donkeys. We have beautiful horses. Sometimes you see a horse really beautiful, rides really well. It's the best we can do. So 3,000 years of exile, and this is what we get. You know, I can't wait, God. Can't wait to see that donkey. It's really exciting. It seems like a trivial, totally insignificant, negligible detail of the story. Does it matter to anyone which mode of transportation the Melech HaMashiach is going to take? And if it were up to me, I would say we should probably give a little more respect to the Melech HaMashiach, take care of him a little bit, find him a driver, parade him around. What's the Ani Veroche Valachamar? What is that? So let's try to understand the significance of this statement. In attempting to do so, we go all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu. There's been a lot of discussion today about Moshe Rabbeinu, so just, we didn't prepare it together. You know, I'm jealous. Michal said that a few weeks ago she came up with a theme. Let me be honest and tell you what happened to me. <laughs> Yesterday morning, I sat down and I said, I really need to prepare a shear for Tisha B'av. <laughs> And something happened to me that never happened before. It was 9.30 in the morning, and I could not formulate a single thought to say. And I was trying. I told my wife, you know, I'm going to leave the house. Let me go to shul. Maybe I'll work better there. I'm sitting until 12.30, 1 o'clock yesterday afternoon. I couldn't come up with anything to talk about. I'm really jealous that a few weeks ago you had this all figured out. So last night was a very late night trying to figure out what to say. Let's go back to Moshe Rabbeinu. The Torah tells us Moshe Rabbeinu is a fugitive he goes down to Midian, he ends up in the house of Yisro. Of course, he gets married to one of the daughters of Yisro. And at some point, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, it's time to go to Mitzrayim. I need you to save the Jewish people. Vayikach Moshe ishto banav. Moshe Rabbeinu packs up his wife and his children, his family, everything he has. And what does he do? Anybody knows the next words in the Pasuk? The end of the Pasuk should have been what it says. Vayashav Artsa Mitzrayim. Moshe Rabbeinu packs up his family and goes to Mitzrayim as he was instructed to do. But no, we're missing a critical phrase there. Moshe Rabbeinu packs up his family, his wife and his children, and all that he has. And he loads it up onto the donkey. And then he goes to Mitzrayim. Says Rashi, do I care the mode of transportation that Moshe Rabbeinu took to get to Mitzrayim? Does it matter? I'm sure you've noticed by now, this is not coincidental. Moshe Rabbeinu also could have taken a little bit nicer of a mode of transportation. What's with this Hamar, says Rashi? Well, Rashi says, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. And what is that? This is the same Hamar that appears by Avram Avinu when he went to the Akedah. By the way, you'll notice, it gets lost in the story. Because we have something major going on. We have the Akedah's Yitzchak. Who's paying attention to how Avram Avinu got there? What does it say? Avram Avinu wakes up early in the morning, and he loads up the donkey with everything they needed, and then he travels to go to the Akedah. What's with this donkey? What, 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 what? Who cares about the donkey? Do I need to know how Avram Avinu got there? How Moshe Rabbeinu traveled to Mitzrayim? How the Melech HaMashiach is going to reveal himself? What is this Hamor? Says Rashi, I want you to know this is the same Hamor that Avram Avinu used by the Akedah. 
which is the same Hamor that Moshe Rabbeinu uses when he goes down to Mitzrayim, which, by the way, is the same Hamor that is also going to be used by the Melech HaMashiach, Sheyibane, Sheyigala Atzma B'meheira, that he's going to appear, Ani V'rochei V'alach Hamor, as the Navi tells us. Now, I ask you, how old is this donkey? How old is the donkey? By the time Mashiach came, comes, and we're talking about going all the way back in history to the days of Avram Avinu. Rashi says, quoting the Medrash, it's the same Hamar, Avram Avinu, Moshe, Mashiach. How old is the donkey? Almost 4,000 years old. It's pretty old. The donkey still has energy? The donkey's still going? Almost 4,000 years later. Really? Interesting. Says the Medrash, let me tell you another thing. This donkey was not born in the days of Avram Avinu. For anyone who has studied Pirkei Avos, you'll know in the fifth parak it says that there are Asara Dvarim Shenivru Be'erev Shabbos Ben Hashmashos. There were ten different aspects of the world that were created. Ben Hashmashos. What does that mean? At the very end of Friday afternoon, going into Shabbos, in this twilight zone between weekday and Shabbos, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created all of these fantastic things. And what were they? HaKadosh Baruch Hu created all the supernatural things. One of them was the Pi HaAson. When we know that Bilam has his encounter with the animal, that was created Bein Hashmashos. Pi HaAretz, the ground that opened up at the time of Korach Adaso. that's not a normal phenomenon, that's not natural. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created that Bein Hashmashos, which means the first six days of creation were for everything natural in our universe. Shabbos was Shabbos, but in between in that twilight zone was all the natural parts of the world that are acting in supernatural ways. All of those were created by Hashmashos. And one of them was this Hamor. This Hamor of Avram Avinu, of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Melech HaMashiach was one of the things that was created Erev Shabbos Bein Hashmashos at the end of Sheshis Yimei Bereshis. Ask the Maharal, Yesh Litmoah, what is so special about this Hamor? Is it more important? Is it more impressive? Is it stronger than any other? And secondly, he says, this had to be created, Erev Shabbos Bein Hashmashos? You've seen lots of people who travel on an animal to get to where they need to get. Why was this created, Bein Hashmashos, which is usually singled out for items in the world that are above nature, that are beyond the regular course of events that we experience in this world. Let's take the question a little bit further. Anybody here ever said Perak Shira? I'm sure some of you have. I'm sure some of you have. I'm sure none of you have. So, Perak Shira is a beautiful brysa. What is Perak Shira about? Perak Shira is an outline of every facet of creation, how it offers praise to HaKadosh Baruch Okay. What does it mean to many of us? Not so much. You don't really delve into why this animal or this part of creation sings this shira. I don't know. But each one has its own pasuk from Tanakh in which it offers praise to HaKadosh Baruch You go through the parak shira I noticed yesterday. I was thinking a lot about the Hamar. So I was wondering, where am I going to find something about the Hamar? I went to Perak Shira. What is the Shira that the Hamar sings to HaKadosh Baruch Let's see how well you know it. Stumped, stumped you. 
what is the shira? I wouldn't pick on anyone. But what is the shira that the Hamar sings to HaKadosh Baruch? A pasuk from Divrei Hayam. Pasuk that we say every day in Vayibarach David. What is the shira that it sings? Lecha Hashem Agdula v'Agvura v'Atiferes v'Hanetzach v'Ahod ki chal v'Hashamayim v'Aretz. Lecha Hashem ha'mamlacha v'Hamesnasi l'chol l'rosh. If I were choosing what the Hamar should talk about when presenting itself to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I, again, I wasn't given a choice, but if I were to choose, I would say, we have some beautiful psukim about a Hamar. What does it say? Yisachar Hamar Gorem. When we're describing the relationship of the Torah scholars, we refer to them as the ones who are like a Hamar. Other things I could have chosen. What does this have to do with a Hamar? L'cha Hashem Agdula V'Agvura V'Atiferes. What is that all about? What does that have to do with the relationship between the Hamar and HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the world? Let's take another place where the Hamar seems to curiously show up. Parshas Vayigash, we have the tremendous climax of Yosef revealing himself to his brothers. I know that every year when we read it, I'm like in suspense, even though we know the end of the story, but it's like, is it really going to work? And you get emotional when you hear Yosef revealing himself and everyone's finally reunited. And he says, Ani Yosef Achichem, I'd like you to go back to our father, to our father. I'm part of the family. I want you to tell him that I'm alive, that I'm the Moshel Bechal Haaretz. Tell him that I'm doing fine. But don't just go tell him. I'm going to send you a package to give to my father. And he puts together a very elaborate package for his father. And what is this package? Ula aviv shalach kazos asara chamorim. Anyone surprised? He sends his father ten donkeys, not one, ten donkeys. And on top of those chamorim, there is wine. Rashi wonders, what's he sending his father wine? You think his father doesn't have any wine? Rashi says his father was an elderly man and wine is good for people in their old age. I don't know. That's what Rashi says. So he sends his father wine. He thought it would be therapeutic for his father to get wine, so he sent him wine. Sefer Ksava Kabbalah writes, Yosef, what does he care to send wine to his father? What does he care to send chamorim to his father to be the way, the transport? Does it really matter? Why does the Torah tell us this detail? Says the Ksava Kabbalah, something's happening here, but the truth is, he says, he takes it further, and he writes, for anyone who ever has studied Gemara, we are told that yayin, what is the Hebrew word, what is the Aramaic word for wine? Chamra. Chamor, that same word. So says the Ksava Kabbalah, this is not coincidental. He's sending wine, which is chamra, on top of a chamor, ten of them, laden with wine to his father. What's happening here? What is this all about? Listen to a maharal. So brilliant, the way he explains it. Writes the Maharal, Chamor is the same letters as Chomer, as Chumrios, which means materialism. When we talk about materialism, it is embodied in the Chamor. 
What does it mean when I ride on top of something? It means I rule over it. When I am on top of the animal, the animal doesn't have control of me. I have control of the animal. Says the Maharal, what does it mean when we talk about our aspiration for Mashiach? And the Navi describes it as, You know what that means? Means that finally we're going to come to an existence when human beings are going to have the ability to rule over the Chumriyas. I'm not going to allow the materialism in my life to drive my decisions. I'm going to drive the decisions for all the material possessions that I have. That's not the world that we live in today. My materialism drives me and drives all of us and drives our community. The coming of Mashiach is that aspiration for the time when all of us will be able to be rochev al hachamor. I'm going to finally have the ability to make decisions with a clear head. I'm going to have the ability to ride and rule and be the one to be sovereign over all of the materialistic aspects of my life. That's why I want the coming of Mashiach. Because it's not going to be empty anymore. It's not going to be about such silliness. It's going to be about something that's a higher purpose. In the absence of a Beis Hamikdash, we don't have karbanos. One of the karbanos that's brought every day is a karban shlamim. Rashi says on Chumash, what is the karban shlamim? We all are familiar with that word. It's shalom. It's peace. Why is it peaceful? Says Rashi, because it makes shalom for everybody. A little part of the carbon goes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's burnt on the Mizbeach. A little part of it goes to the Kohanim, some of it goes to the owner of the carbon. Everybody gets a little bit, it makes Shalom, everyone's happy. You know why everyone's happy? Because we're using our materialistic possession for a higher purpose. We're taking an animal, we're taking our money, and we're bringing it to the Beis Amigdash. And we're saying that all that we have is for a higher purpose. We're saying some of it is going to go to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, some of it is going to be given to the Kohanim, and some of it is going to be enjoyed by me. There's no problem to enjoy life. That's not a problem. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to enjoy life. But it should all be with a higher purpose. There's a reason He gives us materialistic wealth. There's a reason He gives us materialistic property and possession and ownership. He wants us to have it, but He wants us to use it in a way that's ani verochev al hachamor. Says the Maharal, that's what Geula is all about. Why Avram Avinu and Moshe Rabbeinu, the Maharal so brilliantly suggests, Moshe Rabbeinu and Avram Avinu were the only two personalities who HaKadosh Baruch Hu took out of the world of materialism. We're told when Avram Avinu by the Brisbane Absarim, Vayotzei Oso HaChutza, the simple understanding means HaKadosh Baruch Hu took him outside and he said, look at the stars, v'ko yezarecha. Chazal say no. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took him out of the world and he said, Look, there's something greater than just the materialistic world that you live in. He lifted him above civilization. He lifted him above the heavens and he showed him, Look what the world can be. Avram Avinu was the person who was al hachamor. He was on top of his materialism. Moshe Rabbeinu were told as well, Moshe Rabbeinu is told, When he was performing the makos, he is told to take his hand and put it toward the heavens. Chazal says, At that moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Moshe Rabbeinu. It happened again later on when HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Moshe Rabbeinu to Har Sinai. 
and he lifted him above Chumrius. He said life is not only about materialism. Life is much greater than that. It's those two people. It's Avraham Avinu and it's Moshe Rabbeinu who showed us that there is this capacity to live beyond the Chomer. And when we talk about the coming of Mashiach, that is precisely the description that we're giving about the essence of what life is going to look like and feel like at that time. It's ani verochev al hachamor. It's all of us having that capacity to have perspective and to see bigger, to understand and appreciate that the world is a much larger experience than what presents itself in front of us. There's a greater purpose to all that we do and to all that we have. It's there for a reason. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave it to us for a reason. Yosef chooses to send his father a message before he comes down to Mitzrayim. And what was that message? I want you to know that here you're all coming down and God said it's destined for the Jewish people to be in Golos. This didn't happen by itself. But I want you to know, says Yosef, I've been here a long time. I want you to know what you're about to get yourself into. I want you to be prepared for what this experience is. I want you to know that this is Chumrius on top of Chumrius. This is materialism with more materialism. And he sends him specifically Chamorim that are laden with Yayin, with Chamra. And he's telling him, you should know what you're in for. I want you to know that this society here in Mitzrayim in Egypt is so materialistic. They don't care about anything else. There's nothing else that matters to them. Understand the challenge that you're walking into. Know that this is Chumrius on top of Chumrius and nothing else. That's all it is. And that's the message he was trying to send his father. You want to know why, perhaps, the Chamor chooses in Perak Shira to sing to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Shem Where is that Pasuk from? That Pasuk is from Divrei HaYamid. You know what happened? David HaMelech is planning his whole life how he's going to build the Beis HaMikdash. And he does everything to give him the best possible opportunity to do so. And finally, at the last moment, it says, he gives all the spoils of war, and he gives every last bit of his money and his property and his possession, and everything he had, he donates to the cause of the building of the Beis HaMikdash. Everything. He's left with nothing. At that moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu turns to him and he says, David, I love you. But Dam L'Rav Shafachta, you're not going to be the one to build the base on Migdash. What would I say if someone did that to me? Imagine I contribute a million dollars to a cause. I give money, I'll give an example for myself. Every summer I have people calling me, can you get my child into Camp Simcha, send a letter. Imagine I give a million dollars to Camp Simcha. Then my child wants to go and say, I'm sorry, we don't have room. Wouldn't happen. What would I do? I would call every member of the board. I would go and make it public. I would tear the organization apart. How can they do this to someone? After all I did for them, this is what they do? How could HaKadosh Baruch Hu dare say to David HaMelech after all that he did to bring the Beis HaMikdash into a reality in the consciousness of the Jewish people? You're telling me I'm not going to build it? I don't have a right to be a part of this experience? What does David HaMelech say? What is his reaction? Lecha Hashem HaGdula 
v'hagvura, v'hatiferes, v'hanetzach, v'ahot. I want you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to know I'm not upset. I'm disappointed. I wish I can have a part of this, but I'm not upset. Why am I not upset? Because I know that everything I have in my life is yours anyway. This was not something that I was deserving of. All of this wealth that I accumulated is all yours anyway. So I gave it back to where it belonged. You think I'm angry? David HaMelech humbly steps down and says, Lecha Hashem Hagdula Vahagvura Vahatiferes Vahanetzach Vahahod. That's the relationship with material wealth that is appropriate. The Chamor that represents all the materialism in our lives turns to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and says, I want you to know, Lecha Hashem Hagdula Vahagvura Vahatiferes Vahanetzach Vahahod. All the materialism in all of our lives, which I represent, says the Chamor, you should know that all of it is Lecha Hashem Agdula. It's all for you, and everything we have is to be focused on giving back to Akadish Baruch Hu and being Meromim Shemo. Is that not why we're here? And as we started, the point that the Medrash writes about what the experience should be is to turn to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and say like that couple that was getting divorced not because of hate acrimonious and bitter feelings to each other but rather because they loved each other and want the best for one another just like that couple turns to each other and says there is nothing in the world that matters more to me than you we all turn to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and we say thank you for all that we have Thank you for the successes that we have had. Thank you for all the materialism that you've given us. It's a gift. It's a blessing. We're lucky. It's an Isayon also. There's an Isayon of Ashiras. There's an Isayon of Anius. Two different Nisyonos. But this is an Isayon. With all the materialism that we've been blessed with, do we have the capacity, the ability to turn to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and say, L'cha Hashem Hagdula. Do we have the ability to turn to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and say, with all the distraction that you've put in my life, I still have the ability to say, There's nothing in the world that matters more to me, that's more important to me, that's more interesting to me than you. And as we commemorate the second half of Tisha B'Av, it's an opportunity not only to think about what was, not only to think about where we came from, how many calamities befell the Jewish people, but it's also an opportunity to think about where we're headed, to think about that Ani Verochev Allah as being our communal, national, international aspiration for all of our lives, as we hope and look forward to the greeting of Machiach Tzidkenu, Bimhera Vi Amenu, Amen Amen.